The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine, which you probably figured out by now. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just your favorite source of online commentary, but also long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly, and it runs at around 130 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 50,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive online. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash dig Jacobin, all in lowercase. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is a special dig, a discussion with Aziz Rana a couple weeks back that I had on my book, All-American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. Aziz had done my book launch in New York with me in January, but I neglected to have it recorded. So I recorded this one that I did with Verso and Jacobin so that I could share it here with you, my listeners. We cover a lot of ground up to the point where my internet connection crashes before I can answer his last question. Anyhow, it's way too humid for me today to write a lengthy plea for your support, so I will keep it short and sweet. We can only do this podcast because listeners like you listening right now in your earbuds support us at patreon.com slash the dig. If you've been meaning to support us for a while, don't support us yet, but keep meaning to do so. Just take a moment to navigate your web browser to patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution. It's an enormous help. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thank you. And here we go. Aziz Rana is a professor of law at Cornell Law School and the author of The Two Faces of American Freedom. He is currently finishing a book titled Rise of the Constitution on the modern emergence of constitutional veneration in the United States and its lasting political effects. His guest is me, Dan Denver, the author of the book All American Nativism and the host of the podcast you are listening to. So what we're going to do um, is we're going to spend probably about um, 10 to 15 minutes with me just giving a kind of overview of the book itself so that everybody is kind of on the same page with the basic arguments of the book. And then um, Dan and I are going to have a conversation uh, maybe for 30 to 45 minutes sort of depends on, on how things go, just kind of working through um, the book and its contemporary meaning. And then we'll open it up 
um, to questions from you. And I see that there's this is my first time on on um, Crowdcast, but there's a kind of ask the que question um, uh, tab that I'll be looking at to just make sure that I can uh, I can respond or we can engage with the questions that you have. Um, anything that you'd like to to add, Dan, before we jump into it? No, just thanks for thanks for doing this. <laughs> And for reading drafts, multiple drafts of the book. Uh, that's, uh, it was also uh, a pleasure. Okay, so there are lots of different ways in which the rise of Trump and the Trump presidency has been a shock to the national system. Um, and, you know, perhaps the most sort of intense version of that shock is the explicit politics of white supremacy and xenophobia that's come to mark. Um, the Trump administration and Trumpist politics. And in many ways, why that's been experienced as a shock is because of the fact that it feels so out of step with how many Americans have understood the relationship between um, national identity and immigration questions of membership. So that the, the, the explicit politics of xenophobia seems to contradict the idea that the U.S. is a nation of immigrants open to all. And so the fact that Trump can win election, hold power with a coalition around a politics that's grounded in exclusion <laughs> seems especially unsettling. And in a way, what Dan does in this book is he argues that, well, we shouldn't think of this as a contradiction at all. He, he contests the framing of this as something that's, you know, a basic underlying tension. Um, and he does it through an act of historical construction that actually diverges from a lot of what critical history generally consists in, including, you know, my own work. So Dan writes, this is on page 16 of the book, that works of social criticism often marshal forgotten histories to recast a normal seeming reality as strange. In other words, they take a present that seems normal and they show by going back to past moments of dislocation and struggle that actually what we take for granted need not have always been the case. But that's not what, what Dan's doing here by highlighting that what you think is a contradiction isn't. He, instead, his book, this book does the opposite, analyzing what for decades was an all too normal anti-immigrant politics to explain how we ended up in such a seemingly bizarre present. In other words, he takes this moment of strangeness and attempts to, to show how it's actually continuous with the past, how it's much more steeped in American identity than we might necessarily think. And he does that. He shows how the contemporary moment around immigration and race politics is actually far more normal than it seems by highlighting how Trump is in many ways the culmination of two long-term historical dynamics. So dynamic number one has to do with the long history really going all the way back, not just to the founding, but to the very earliest days of colonization of settler colonialism an exclusion that was just built in to the politics of membership and migration. So that's one long history. But then there's a second <clears throat> historical trajectory that's sort of essential to, to Dan's argument. And that's that Trump <clears throat> and the contemporary moment is also a culmination of a very specific history that's a product of politics since the 1970s, where you've seen the mainstreaming of nativist sentiment alongside and in a way um, in connection with the rise both of neoliberal austerity and the entrenchment of a carceral state, the latter of which we're seeing being contested on the streets as we speak. And this mainstreaming of nativist sentiment was kind of built around 
a couple different principles. The first is the idea that really recent immigrants, and especially people of, of a Mexican descent, are an economic and indeed even a demographic threat that have to be controlled by the state, requires state intervention, a problem that needs to be solved by the state. And the second related point, this is something that really both parties increasingly end up approving of, is the idea that the border is a site that requires protection, that has to be secured, indeed perhaps has to be secured at almost all costs. And what Dan says is that we can see this moment that's being you know, fought out on the streets, but that's also present at the border, as a culmination of both of these long histories. And he makes this argument, he tells the story of how these two histories end up being joined together by constructing the book around four kind of basic concepts. Each concept has an organizing chapter. So this is scarcity, security, empire, both old and new, and then finally reaction. And he tells how each of these conceptual frames through, through the book end up coalescing around what the title then declares as all-American nativism. And so in the process, you know, Dan does a number of really remarkable things. So, I, you know, I think first and foremost, this book is a tremendous work of um, scholarly and historical synthesis. It's why, you know, I started off by saying it was really, it's been a pleasure to, to read it and to be able to see it in draft. It does a beautiful job of linking what we think of as recent immigration history to a, a long-standing settler past to show how immigration and settler colonialism are in many ways like two sides of the same coin. But then it does some other things that I want us to just sort of note up front and maybe we'll be able to get into more and more in, in conversation question and answer. And that's the fact that the book also makes a series of political interventions explicitly showing what we can think of as really the limitations of both the bipartisan compromise and agreement that emerged post-1970s over immigration and also the limitations of the nativist project, how both embody a form of politics that we're seeing unraveling in the present because of their own uh, in, in inherent um, problems. So what's the issue with the kind of bipartisan approach? The basic bipartisan approach that Dan highlights and we see this with Bush, uh, the second uh, Bush uh, administration, so Bush Jr., but also with Clinton and, and Obama, was this idea that you can kind of navigate extreme anti-immigrant sentiment and nativist sentiment by having a trade-off, where on the one hand, you support and back um, border security, um, policing at the border, the militarization of the border, while at the same time assume that if you provide that as um, you know um, a victory for uh, right-wing nativism, then you can get some degree of inclusive politics and policies for those that count as quote-unquote good immigrants, including, let's say, like the Dreamers. And what Dan shows in great detail over the last 25, 30 years is that this is just basically a bargain with the devil that inherently fails. In other words, the more militarization you end up uh, supporting, the greater the commitment to border security, um, the greater that that just comes to define and swamp the entire conversation. And so that the benefits of inclusion and reform that you think might be achieved end up being drowned in a larger discourse of militarization. But then there's also an essential problem that nativists have, which is, this is something that, that Dan gets to by the end, which is that the nativist position, and in a way we're seeing this with policing 
um, right now in real time is not a position that has majority support. And nativist politics is actually grounded in maintaining this distinction between legal immigration, that's quote unquote good, and quote unquote illegal immigration, that is bad. And so highlighting how the politics of nativism is supposed to be primarily about getting rid of quote unquote illegal immigrants. Of course, this is just, you know, in a sense, um, a cover for a much larger kind of racial purification and demographic project. But there's a basic issue that nativists have as long as they hold on to this dichotomy, which is you can never really get rid of quote unquote illegal immigrants because to eliminate the category would be to eliminate the basic justifications for the policies of militarization in the first place. And so that there's a bit, there's an inherent contradiction. If Dan would reject the idea that there's an inherent contradiction in the American project between sort of exclusion and inclusion, you'd say that there is an inherent contradiction at the heart of nativism. And more generally, there's a kind of basic and profoundly troubled mindset that shapes both the bipartisan approach and the nativist approach, which is a carceral mindset, where really it's the penal system and the security state, the, ap the security apparatus of the state that is supposed to manage the bodies of poor black and brown people. And we're seeing the consequences of that mindset play out on the streets right now. It's why, for example, the fact that customs and Border Patrol are policing D.C. is not a surprise. These two things are deeply and inherently connected. And it means that Dan ends his book by arguing that the only real solution to the contemporary politics of nativism, to all American nativism, is an absolute repudiation of the carceral mindset everywhere, in the city and at the border. It also means a commitment to decarceration, to decriminalization when it comes to both immigration questions and the larger penal system. And specifically for the condition of migrants, it means a politics of migrant freedom and a rejection in total of the imperative of the border. So with that as just a bit of a background, what I'd like us to do now is kind of dig in to some of the specifics of the argument. And we're going to kind of work through the book um, and its historical arc. Uh, and maybe we can start, um, Dan, by just talking a little bit about that long history of nativism, of which um, Trump is a kind of endpoint. Um, so where does nativist, if nativist politics is all American, if Trump is not un-American, where does nativism come from? Like, why is it so ingrained in, in sort of the long array of American history? That is a great and, and big question, maybe the one that I always struggle to answer succinctly because I wanted to initially write a book that was more about the immigration reform wars of the 2000s from the through the Bush and Obama administrations. But then, of course, I realized I needed to go back to the, the 70s and the beginning of sort of the militarization of the border as we've come to know it today and the real construction of of Mexican migrants as the iconic quote unquote illegal immigrants and the emergence of, of of the border crisis that exploded so powerfully in the 1990s, shaping this the the early years of this bipartisan war on immigrants beginning under Bill Clinton. But then I realized I had to go further back still to to 1965 when the U.S. for the first time explicitly eliminated or eliminated explicitly racist immigration 
laws that had barred most Asians and explicitly restricted white migrants from disfavored parts of uh, of Europe, people who were seen as not, not sufficiently white in a variety of ways in the early 20th century, Italians, Eastern Europeans, Jews. To understand that, I had to go back to the 1920s and the national origins quota laws, which established these explicitly racist immigration quotas and formalized basically a total ban of, of Asians from immigrating to the country. And then further back still to the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which coincided with the first federal immigration control law, the Immigration Act of, of 1882. And to understand that, I had to ask, well, why why does this federal immigration system in the emerge and anti-Chinese migrant movement peak amidst the, the so-called closing of the Western frontier. And then so to better understand that, I had to look at the work of, of you know, people like your work, Two-Faced American Freedom, Paul Freimer's amazing book, Building This American, Building an American Empire or This American Empire? I can't remember. Building an American Empire. And oh, wow, since the very beginning of this country, westward expansion was premised on an explicit racial population politics. Like the people in Washington were, you know, the settlers wanted to, uh, the ordinary settlers wanted to rush as far west as fast as they could. And the people in, in charge in Washington had a very explicit debates and, and uh, decisions around carefully expanding westward so that they could consolidate white majorities as as they moved west. And so what that, that revealed that I had a complicated story to tell in my book and that what we think of as a, a as nativism or xenophobia is just these are like terms to to help us think like heuristics to help us think through a particular subset of a broader racist population politics that have been core to this country from the get go and from before from the moment of settler the inception of settler colonialism in the country. So if if there's this long-standing history that that tells us something that's that's deep and true about the American approach to migration, so why is it that the most common narrative today about the U.S. is is the narrative that the U.S. Um, not only was it founded in principles of liberal equality, but it is a nation of immigrants that's sort of definitionally part of national identity? And so maybe um, tell tell us a little bit about where that argument comes from and how it was sort of given policy teeth in the 1960s. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't um, the the self-conception of white settlers in this country at all at the get-go when just a few years after the, the revolution, the, the the first Naturalization Act was, was passed that opened citizenship to free white people. And that there was a conception throughout the 19th century that this country, the the idea wasn't this was a nation of immigrants. The idea was that people were coming from certain parts of Europe who were considered co-participants, as you show very clearly in your work, in in the settler colonial project. And so that's why Irish, um, for a variety of uh, of reasons, were, were targeted in the early parts of the 19th century by states, not by the federal government, by Massachusetts and New York, but especially Massachusetts. But even still, still because of the explicit affirmation of white supremacy in the nation's naturalization laws, they suffered deportations and other things, but they never, but but they they could still kind of hold on to legal whiteness. Chinese migrants were, were not accorded that, and then neither were the Japanese who followed. And the the opposition to 
to Japanese settlement is particularly notable because what a lot of Japanese migrants to the United, to the United States were doing was trying to replicate white settler life, build farms, you know, farm homesteads and whatnot. And that since race was a way to legitimate and describe certain types of degraded labor, Japanese migrants essentially impersonating white settler uh, economies and identities and of independence and economic self-sufficiency posed posed a, a massive threat. Um, and we could go on and on and on, but it wasn't until really in the latter days of the National Origins Quota laws. These are the this is the period from the 1920s through 1965 that people like the you know nativist goblin evil genius advising Trump Stephen Miller are so intent on returning to from the 19 uh, from 1921 when the first uh, I think it was the Emergency Quota Act was passed this year through 1965 when they were repealed uh, by LBJ with the Hart Seller Act the latter decades of, of of that era that this idea of the nation of immigrants began to emerge for the first time and Matthew Fry Jacobson and uh, and May Nye both both discuss this in different ways in their works but it was only then as 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 the new deal in many ways had incorporated the the more newly arriving white white immigrants from the turn of the century the late 19th and early 20th century Italians Poles Catholics more more generally had incorporated them into whiteness through the achievements of of the new deal at the height of the the Cold War with the upsurge of the civil rights movement that this new story about who the United States what the United States was and who the American people were and are emerged and that idea as as Matthew Fry Jacobson points out uh, I think I think he uses this language moved the origin story of this country from Plymouth Rock to Ellis Island which prior to this period to the 60s had not had not been considered a you know kind of like a tourist attraction and uh, sorry and one, one other thing and, and and what that relocation does is uh the, you know the story of of the nation of immigrants as as JFK articulates it very very famously in his book it's a story of all of these white ethnic immigrants more or less who were very much discriminated against and targeted for restriction in the early 20th century but who had become white and then telling the the story of the Amer- of American history and of the American people as their story which doesn't really explain much about why why black people who were brought to this country in in chains why they're here how indigenous people who uh were whose dispossession was the fundamental precondition for this country where they fit in and where Mexicans who were brought to this country as as the cheap labor source during the whole national origins quota era era through the Bracero programs but also many crossing without authorization where they fit into the story and indeed with the 1965 repeal of the national origins quota quotas there are first ever what follow what what accompanies and then follows that are the first ever restrictions and increasingly sharp restrictions on legal mexican migration which had been institutionalized in a massive way bringing millions of mexican migrants to this country over the prior decades and what that does is suddenly the law and even gerald ford president gerald ford understood that this was what what was going to happen the mexican migration continued but was illegalized and it was the nation the liberal nation of immigrants story that created this good immigrant bad immigrant narrative and facilitated the legitimation of the illegalization of mexican migration yeah so the, the, this is really interesting so the the great policy achievement of the the kind of 
mid 20th century nation of immigrants idea that we're really familiar with is the Hart Seller Act. And that's something that's, you know, oftentimes celebrated um, alongside, you know, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. It comes down in 1965. It's thought of as part of the same civil rights movement. And what it does is it ends racially restrictive um, quotas in the U.S. But at the same time, the thing that you're noting is for the first time in American history, it places the Western Hemisphere and, and here the, the central country really is Mexico on a quota system. And so maybe say a little bit more about like what that latter move does in terms of kind of reconfiguring the na nature of migration politics in the U.S. and also um, how it um, alongside kind of erasing questions of indigeneity and slavery, that it's a, a, a framing um, that fundamentally misunderstands the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico. Like how does it erase the history specifically of the U.S. and Mexico? Yeah, well, just to, to to maybe I alluded to this in my my last answer, but the the nativists of the the early twentieth century they didn't want the organized nativists. They wanted Asians barred. They they won that. They wanted Eastern and Southern European uh, heavily restricted. They won that. They basically wanted to like freeze the American uh, demography in in place, or even wind it back in time. They didn't want. Mexicans coming either, but there were incredibly powerful business interests in the Southwest, the growers in the rapidly industrializing, you know, agricultural industry of the Southwest who demanded Mexican labor. And it was more or less a compromise between the nativists and the growers that allowed for the Western Hemisphere to be exempt from all of this. And this was premised on an idea that Mexicans would not come to to stay, that they would that they would visit and never put down roots here. And like be, I, there's there was some famous uh, infamous quote that I reference in my book. I can't remember precisely right now, but basically describes them as migratory birds who will return back to to their home. So the, the, there's massive recruitment of Mexican labor. And then with World War II and the massive demand for labor that accompanies that, there's the Bracero program between growers, the U.S. government and the Mexican government, which which legally and intentionally brings millions of of Mexican workers into the U.S. to as temporary workers who are welcomed as laborers, but not welcomed very much as, at all as citizens, as human beings. <laughs> it's it's sort of like an insourcing of, of labor instead of, of an outsourcing. And that comes to an end in 1964, I believe the year that b before Hart Seller is, is passed. And then in 1965, you have the first ever Western Hemisphere uh, quota ceiling. But then what's really significant is the 1976 law that puts uniform annual visa uh, caps on every country in the world. So whether you're Belgium, you know, who we don't have like any particular that I can recall migration relationship with in 1965 or Mexico, where we have an institutionalized, deep economic labor market integration and social networks that are bringing Every year, large numbers of Mexican workers into the U.S. Suddenly, I believe the, the number is 20,000. Suddenly, there's 20,000 visas for legal migration from, uh, uh, from for Mexicans and for Belgians. And so this is facially rac racially neutral. Like, OK, yeah, we don't have anything in the law anymore that says no Chinese. But effectively, what it's doing is saying is just criminalizing this massive swath of Mexican migrants. But what the nation of immigrants story does is says, 
uh, well, we, we're a nation of, of, of immigrants, which means that we accept uh, good immigrants because our country's built on immigrants. And obviously, as we just discussed, that invisibilizes all kinds of things like slavery being the basis of the country, indigenous dispossession. But what it also does is say that basically uh, good, good immigrants are welcome here. And Mexican migrants who are suddenly illegalized in mass by this legal change don't fit in there. And so you see the... Despite you know, the fact the, the, that you have long-standing communities that were really built on both sides of the border um, that were connected to you know, um, labor patterns, migration networks overnight, all of a sudden that's now against the law, essentially. Yeah. And we could also mention that a huge part of the U.S. was the northern half of Mexico before the mid 19th century, which is invisibilized many times over <laughs> throughout the years. So this is a really interesting moment where you both have reform that gets rid of racially restrictive quotas, but you also have policies that treat, as you said, you know, Mexican immigrants as equivalent in their structural relationship to the U.S. as like immigrants from Belgium or, you know, Bhutan or just name any particular country that you might want. And this double move, in a sense, creates the, the conditions for really the, the more um, compact history from the 70s to the present that you chart in the book. So, you know, how is it that modern immigration policy that starts in the 60s, that's really established with this uniform quota system in 76, ends up feeding the rise of, of contemporary nativism? Yeah, so you have this temp the good immigrant, bad Im immigrant template and you have the the illegality pretext to describe opposition to Mexican migration and anti-immigrant sentiment becomes more intense in the 1970s as the ambitions and optimism and even really like utopianism of the great society collapses into an incredible sense of pessimism and scarcity with with the oil shock and stagflation and extremely high unemployment. It's no coincidence that at that very same time, one of the biggest books in uh, the very tail end of the, the 60s, I think it's 68 or 9, is The Population Bomb, which argues that population growth left unchecked is going to lead to chaos, famine. It was an enormous bestseller at the time. And lo and behold, it doesn't, it turns out not, what, what really resonates is not so much a abstract concern with the number of people on the planet, but a concern with with very the number of people from very particular groups and the reproduction of women's reproduction from very particular groups. And so it's out of, of that milieu that springs this uh, group uh, zero population growth, which is an, which, which is anti-immigrant, but also concerned with all sorts of other methods to achieve population control. And one of the guys who ends up running it is this ophthalmologist from Michigan named John Tanton. And they're not anti-immigrant enough for him. So he goes on in 1979 to found the Federation for American Immigration Reform. And then over the years goes on to found or play a role in founding every major national anti-immigrant organization that we know today, the Center for Immigration Studies, Numbers USA, U.S. English. And what, even though there's like massive anti-immigrant sentiment, in the country, turning that into a consequential form of politics is not, he finds out, the movement finds out, is not, the activists find out, is not automatic. Even though there's all this anti-immigrant sentiment, not only among white Americans, but among Hispanic Latino Americans, among black 
Americans, but it's not a voting issue. It's not a kind of culture war issue that pits the two parties against each other. And that begins to to change. And what, what they use is they use language and, and, you, and English-only laws, which are extremely successful, beginning with the San Francisco Ordinance in the 1980s to make English the official language, followed by a statewide proposition. And then in the 1990s, it really explodes using this whole framework of the good immigrant and the bad immigrant and the bad immigrant being the illegal immigrant because an illegal immigrant is someone who is inherently criminal. So when this really explodes with California at its epicenter in the early 90s, it's around the illegality of border crossing. It's around immigrants posing a criminal threat. It's about immigrants posing a an economic and fiscal threat because they are attempting to access jobs and public benefits to which they have no right because of their illegality. And this is obviously heavily and explicitly racialized, but it's the liberal nation of immigrants framework that presents the good immigrant as the legal immigrant and the bad immigrant as the quote-unquote illegal immigrant that allows for all of this to happen. And it immediately, from the very beginning, is a bipartisan affair. And in California, as a brief example, featuring uh, the Republican governor, Pete Wilson, demagoguing in favor of the anti-immigrant Proposition 187, which would have denied public services to undocumented immigrants, including public education to undocumented children, demagogically hitching his re-election campaign to that and winning, but also Dianne Feinstein at the time, who was a U.S. senator, Democratic U.S. senator from California, still is, who had lost the gubernatorial election to Wilson a few years back. Also the Clinton administration, who at the very time, same time that some extremely hardcore right-wing nativists and Pete Wilson were pushing this radical anti-immigrant proposition in California at the very same time were embarking on a dramatic escalation in border militarization, beginning in at the El Paso Ciudad Juarez border with Operation Hold the Line, and then continuing on like the eve, like just a few weeks, I think, before the vote on Proposition 27, unroll, un- unfolding this massive escalation in border militarization in San Diego with Operation Gatekeeper. Yeah, so that by the time we get to the 90s, there's a really interesting kind of two-part story. So one part of it has to do with these policies and practices that you're describing. So the growing militarization of how um, the federal government, even the states, um, are approaching the question of immigration. You have Prop 187 in California. You have ORIRA and um, <clears throat> the you know federal immigration reform bill that passes in 96 that's not vetoed and so signed into law. Um, by Clinton that essentially means that um, immigrants, even that are lawful residents, now live on a kind of permanent probation in the U.S. because of the the vast expansion of the number of like crimes that could make you deportable, um, mandatory deportation, um, harsh uh, border enforcements. Um, so all of these policies are taking place in the mid-1990s. And at the same time, there's a background, let's say, conversation, elite media conversation that's taking place about race and immigration that's sort of feeding this discussion that sort of that draws from the edges of nativist politics. But now you're seeing sort of being expressed in the New York Times, the New Republic, the Atlantic, sort of the legacy institutions that we associate with um, with liberal or let's say now like centrist America. Um, And so I'd like us to talk a little bit about both. Maybe we can start with the background 
kind of media conversation of that era. One of the things that I found really striking about reading your book were just the number of pieces um, that were explicitly kind of xenophobic um, and racist that were published in, you know, mainstream press settings um, and that seemed to just circulate pretty widely in the 1990s. You know, we have figures today that are viewed as, you know, extreme figures of the right, like Dinesh D'Souza, that were getting, you know, massive and indeed like glowing reviews in, you know, in places like the New York Times. So what is it? A lengthy cover story in the Atlantic. Dinesh D'Souza had a lengthy liberal education, an excerpt from it, I believe, um, which was one of his first books, was published as a lengthy, which was, you know, condemning the PC rule of, of, of American universities and colleges, was initially published uh, as a, an excerpt of it as a very long cover story in The Atlantic. Yeah. So what's going on in the politics of the 90s, which we tend to think of now as this era of kind of like a sort of anodyne centrist consent? consensus, where the arguments, like racist demagogic arguments from the right on immigration and race, including, you know, Charles, like Murray and the bell curve and all of this kind of stuff is getting mainstream attention. Um, and how is that setting the terms for the conversation? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'm not sure I answer like why this all happens adequately in the book. And you and I have discussed this on occasion over over the years. But first, just to, to set some of the the political context. Um, Aziz referred to a few a, a few laws, IRA-IRA, EDPA. I think both were passed in 1996, if I remember correctly. And in both, it's notable that, that the two most important anti-immigrant laws, I think it's safe to say federal laws of the 1990s, were also kind of mass incarceration, uh, cr- criminal justice-oriented laws, and that both linked the the once more civil immigration enforcement system linked it ever more closely to the criminal justice system. And I mean, that's like what was happening on the policy level and on a political level, increasingly identified the immigrant problem as one of immigrants being a criminal threat. So it's notable that that the war on crime, which, of course, was was premised on the pathologization and demonization of black people was also part of the war on immigrants, which was premised on the pathologization and demonization of immigrants as criminal threats. So these are deeply interlinked. It's also notable that both Prop 187 and the welfare reform law signed by Clinton in 96 attacked immigrants' access to welfare, which we, everyone listening, I'm sure, knows welfare reform was the, the way to that, the path to that was smoothed by the pathologization of black women, black single women on welfare in particular, but the pathologization of, of, of immigrant women, particularly Latino women, particularly in places like California, also played a key, a key role in that reaction. So in terms of both the reactionary welfare politics and the reactionary law and order security politics of the 1990s, we see that anti-immigrant and anti-black forces just fundamentally interlinked at almost every moment. Um, and I think that's re- revealing and maybe not discussed enough. Um, and then, okay, so the media environment at the time was, I think, pretty well encapsulated by Dinesh D'Souza's Atlantic cover story from, I don't know the date off the top of my head, I should bring my book with me to interviews, but I think it's around 1992 or something. And it's it's all about this attack 
on PC culture. The thing is, is that people on the left really weren't using the term PC. Liberals even weren't using the term, or left liberals weren't using the term PC. It was a, a kind of new, new liberal, new Democrat, neoliberal, and conservative framework for delegitimating the historic demands of of left struggles. And it was actually uh, invented, if I remember correctly, by a New York Times writer around 1990, 1991. The date could be totally wrong, but thereabouts. It was invented by the same New York Times writer who, uh, in a book review in a few years later, would give this glowing review to a book called Alien Nation by Peter Brimlow, which was put out by a major New York, you know, major U.S. pub commercial publisher. I don't remember the name. Maybe uh, I'm not going to um, smear any <laughs> publishers, but it was a bit because uh, I can't remember. It was a big one. And he gave this glowing review to this book, Alien Nation, which was just monstrously and explicitly racist and itself was based on a cover story in the National Review, but was turned into a book. And they called Hispanics a strange anti-nation within the nation and said that people have a right to uh, demand uh, that they preserve the demographic norms in this country and that indeed they have a right to demand that they be shifted back. I mean, a very white, explicitly, not, you know, explicitly white supremacist, anti-immigrant book that was reviewed glowingly in the New York Times by the same guy who invented PC as an epithet and reviewed glowingly in the Atlantic and and many other places. And this was also uh, the, you know, the era when the New Republic was publishing an excerpt of of the bell curve, which argued that that black people and and Latinos were genetically inferior to to white people. And it was the attack on kind of like PC culture that legitimated this resurgence of naked racism because the idea was that like the PC left was had gone so far that they were uh what what PCness meant and continues to mean it is is that certain orthodoxies blind people to the 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 facts and then they get to present themselves as these brave truth tellers who are violating you know these uh these unfortunate taboos and lo and behold the guy who wrote Alien Nation who was glowingly reviewed in these mainstream liberal publications like the New York Times who got a start at the National Review, who published this book. He goes on in, I think, 1999 or so to found the website VDARE, um, one of the most important white nationalist websites on the internet, unsubtly named after uh, Virginia Dare, purportedly the first white child born in North America, um, and is now openly considered by, you know, liberal media types to be a white supremacist. But the the crazy thing is that he was just that in the 1990s and was feted. And it's disgusting, but um, it's kind of what you were talking about in your introduction to this conversation. You know, why I want to make the normal seeming path and past this normal past that so many liberals are so adamant about returning to, according to the, the primary, we're still somehow in the midst of, that that past was actually like really really strange and pretty monstrous frequently. Mm. So maybe let's dig into that a little bit by um, by sort of talking a bit about the, the policy and the kinds of choices that the Democratic Party made around immigration and policing um, more generally during the 1990s. So as you noted, 
the central bills that dealt with immigration, so EDPA and ERIRA in 96, are really bills that are about um, carceration in the carceral state. They're about applying a security app, the state security apparatus as a way of controlling migrant populations and creating what now amounts to a massive new sort of category of deportable people. So it's it's the period in which the U.S. in the you know mid 1990s goes from having an already aggressive and racialized immigration system to to being essentially the deportation nation that it becomes, um, you know, during the Bush and Obama years. Um, now that's obviously a link between nativism and the contemporary problems that we're seeing play out on the streets around policing, the security apparatus, and mass incarceration. And it's marked by, let's say, the same compromise that Democratic politicians made um, around questions of race and policing. They're making the same compromise in the immigration context. In other words, folks like Clinton, you know, with Arira in 96, like they're not the ones that wrote the bill, but, you know, Clinton is not willing to veto it. It's a policy of triangulation, but it's an assessment that you have to be tough on the border. You have to support border security in this broader climate in order to be able to get the kind of reform objectives that you want. But somewhat less sadistic than Republicans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's the same basic um, psychology, like, you know, internal party psychology that produces the Crime Control Act in 94, which is you have to show that you're tough on crime um, in order to be able to get any of the kinds of racial reforms that you might want. Um, what do we make of that kind of pragmatic compromise around the carceral state, both in terms of policing and in immigration that we saw in the 90s? And what's its legacy today? Because in many ways, the Democratic Party is still controlled by politicians from that period. Biden, Schumer, um, Feinstein, you know, Pelosi. These are all politicians that were shaped by a set of dynamics from the 90s and have continued to essentially hold the same basic, um, you know, um, dual positions where you have to be strong on security while at the same time have some kind of space for uh, for reform. What do we make of that, you know, that worldview then? And what do we think of its kind of legacy now? All right. I'm going to try to uh, get from here to from that from there to here. So in the 90s, there are real problems that that people are are facing. You can't kind of like manufacture. It's hard to manufacture racist scapegoating out of out of thin air. So the material they're working with in the early 90s is there is there is real disorder in the streets. As James Foreman Jr. shows in his book, crime, crime is up. And in the absence of any sort of social state amid Reaganism and the rise of of new Democrats, much of the public, including uh, much of the black public, turns to 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 policing and prisons as the answer in part because it's the only answer they're, they're they're given and and that is sort of a microcosm of the the broader politics of the the era which is a, a bipartisan effort on the part of both new democrats and republicans to shift every conflict possible onto the terrain of security and thanks to Rahm Emanuel we have proof that at least he was very intentionally thinking about it like this, because at the moment, there's incredible anxiety at the end of with the Cold War's end and the rise of this unipolar world order that coincides with a new era 
of intensifying economic globalization exemplified for Americans by the negotiation, signing, and then implementation of NAFTA, which also, of course, involves the Mexican border. And so what Rahm Emanuel says in a memo to to Bill Clinton, I think in 95 or 96, is if we want to maintain continued public support for legal trade with Mexico, which is referring to NAFTA, then we need to make a show, I'm paraphrasing here, we need to make a show of cracking down on illegal trade or illegal cross-border activities, i.e. people and drugs. And so the performance of, of security, both on the streets in terms of the politics of the war on crime and mass incarceration and at the border, are both key to recontextualizing every possible conflict two decades into the rise of neoliberalism and the stagnation of wages and the financialization of American capitalism to redefine every conflict possible as a security one. And of course, this only intensifies after 9-11 when anti, kind of anti-terrorism politics informed 1990s nativism and security politics more generally, but obviously that comes to another level entirely. So it's not just that nativism is connected to the rise of mass hyper-incarceration, but it's also tied to the politics of endless war. So that this, you know, security politics you're seeing operating in the city, at the border, and then abroad. Yeah. Oh, and just this is a little bit out of order, but one thing that I should probably probably mention is that something I make a point of doing in my book is arguing that nativism and anti-immigrant politics focused on anti-immigrant politics as we understand them being politics of opposing international migration and international immigrants, people from other borders, is basically inseparable from this larger racial population politics, very much focused on race in place and human movement, uh, very much including domestic migration from the the fears over in the North, over uh, the end of slavery, meaning black migration to the North, animating, making the voluntary and or forced colonization of black people outside of the United States, the, the, the mainstream anti-slavery opinion for, for a time, to when the Great Migration actually happens in the 20th century, um, resist, white resistance to, to black migrants being core to the, the entirety of 20th century U.S. politics, the resistance to the integration of, of neighborhoods, schools, and job sites across the entire North and West. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s, by Mike Davis and John Wiener. Los Angeles in the 60s was a hotbed of political and social upheaval. The city was a launchpad for black power, where Malcolm X and Angela Davis first came to prominence, and the Watts uprising shook the nation. The city was home to the Chicano blowouts and Chicano moratorium, as well as being the birthplace of Asian American as a political identity. It was a locus of the anti-war movement, gay liberation movement, women's movement, and, of course, the California counterculture. 
Mike Davis and John Wiener provide the first comprehensive movement history of L.A. in the 60s, drawing on extensive archival research and dozens of interviews with principal figures as well as the author's storied personal histories as activists. Following on from Davis's award-winning L.A. history, City of Courts, Set the Night on Fire is a historical tour de force delivered in scintillating and fiercely beautiful prose. Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s, by Mike Davis and John Wiener. Out now from Verso Books. You know, continuing with the story, so you sort of charted the path from the 90s through the, the early 2000s with the War on Terror. And in a way, you know, what I was hearing you saying was that the kind of um, pragmatic conclusions that Clintonites ended up making about immigration, which is you have to be tough on uh, on border security as a way of being able to hold this uh, this tension between bad, quote unquote, illegal immigrants and good legal migration and in a context in which you're trying to also preserve the flow of capital um, globally through various trade agreements like NAFTA. Um, that that made a kind of um, both political sense at election time, but also ideological sense for where the Democratic Party was. Um, the Democratic Party uh, today and really over the last decade is increasingly, at least the base, has moved in a different direction. What do we make of the legacy, the long term legacy of that kind of pra- that set of pragmatic conclusions that in many ways still still seems to govern the leadership of the National Party, who are all politicians shaped by the politics of the 80s and 90s. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's very clear from this period, and that's, you know, there's this whole this whole idea that that the Democratic establishment is sort of economically moderate, but socially liberal, which is just like entirely backwards, because it's precisely when the Democratic Party is substituting, it's uh, displacing its working class base uh, in favor of 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 knowledge workers and suburbanites that it also takes such a hard turn towards towards security politics. There was a way in which the lessons that the Democrats learned in the '90s about the need to be be tough on security in all of these contexts, which is really central to right. uh, you know austerity, the carceral state, the defunding of uh, welfare reform. Um, the support for like interventionism abroad, the securitizing of the border. There's an entire vision um, that, in a sense, made electoral sense for for Clinton. Clinton gets reelected in '96. You know, he he passes into law welfare reform in these various bills and wins reelection. Um, that's that legacy though has had much longer legs right. than the particular electoral conditions of that era. It's still, you know, we're seeing it being contested in the streets in a way to just put a fine point on it. This is not an original point. This is something that a lot of people have been saying right now. You know, many of the cities that are facing mass uprisings are controlled at virtually every level by Democrats, but in a way by Democrats that learn the same lessons that Clinton learned about both immigration and, and, um, you know, and, and incarceration in the 90s, but now don't seem like either lessons that are appropriate for the the electoral moment or the political time. So what do we make of the legacy of those choices? The war on the bipartisan war on immigrants was launched with a bipartisan popular basis. It had if you look at public opinion polling in the early 90s, you have similar very high percentages of Democrats and Republican voters who have negative feelings, who report negative feelings towards immigration. 
generally. And so between then and now, we go from very little fencing on the U.S. border to uh, more than 650 miles, I believe, when Trump takes office, particularly thanks to the Secure Fence Act of 2006, signed into law by George W. Bush, but supported in the Senate by Obama, Biden, Clinton. We go from, I think, around 4,000 or so Border Patrol agents in 1993 to nearly 20,000 today. And that whole process takes off with bipartisan support. But what we begin to see in the 2000s is a uh, really important uh, process of, of of conflict and polar and, and partisan polarization around immigration. In when immigration reemerges as a big explicit issue around 2004, 2005, um, after it had been kind of displaced politically uh, by 9/11, even as 9/11 ra- led to the ramping up of institutional means of anti-immigrant and, uh, and, and, and border enforcement. When it reemerges in 2004, 2005, Bush was trying to push comprehensive immigration reform. And Obama would try to do the same too. This idea that, okay, we have these nativists on the right who they want all the immigrants gone. We have business. They want cheap labor, guest workers in particular. They're into immigration of all sorts. And we have immigrant advocacy groups who want legalization of the millions of undocumented immigrants in this country. And when Bush tries to push this, he meets a ferocious response from the nativist right because he doesn't understand that they will not vote for any thing that will legalize a single immigrant in this country because that's their whole point is is that uh is <laughs> is to expel all uh undocumented immigrants they wouldn't legalize anyone. So Bush is pushing this uh quixotically and House Republicans come up with their own bill, the Sensenbrenner bill, which passes the House of Representatives in December 2005 and it breaks the rules of the bipartisan war on immigrants, which has since the 1990s been about the security theater, the spectacular performance of repressive state power that's intended to convey to the American people that the border is secure and thus that their world and lives are becoming secure. Obviously, that doesn't happen. The performance always fails. And when it does fail, instead of reexamining the basic logic of the security theater, there are just calls to heighten and escalate and do more security. But it doesn't actually mess with the actual existence of a massive undocumented workforce in this country, which the Sensenbrenner bill would do because it would criminalize mere undocumented presence in this country, which then and now remains a civil offense that is remedied, quote unquote, through deportation. But it's not a criminal offense that you will serve time for. Crossing the border without authorization, that's illegal entry or illegal reentry. But mere undocumented presence civil offense. The Sensenbrenner bill would have not only criminalized that, but criminalized aiding undocumented immigrants, which many worried would criminalize the activities of like Catholic charities. And so that passes the House. It goes nowhere in the Senate. But what it does do is prompt massive, just enormous immigrant rights protests to explode throughout 2006. Yeah, there's some in March, I believe, then in April, and then on May Day, I think were the largest. And they're enormous. Hundreds of thousands of people, uh, I believe like 500,000 maybe in LA, same in Chicago, New York, everywhere. I was in Portland, Oregon at the time. And so what we see, and, and this is 
visible in the in, in the polling data is we begin to see a partisan divergence over immigration. And that's pushed by both the extreme increasing radicalization of anti-immigrant Republicans and the fact that that immigrants who form such a important part of the base, immigrants of color who form such a particularly Latinos, particularly Latinos who form such an important part of the Democratic base that they rise up and say enough with this. And then from there on out, you see the polarization increasing. You see it taking on increasing under Obama when Obama achieves record deportations, by the way, by using the criminal justice system. That's his main method, both by charging people, both by formally deporting people at the border and charging them with the the federal misdemeanor of illegal entry and the federal felony of illegal reentry, by using this program called Secure Communities, which uses basically this fingerprint database from the FBI and merges it with, with one from ICE so that every single jail in the country becomes a front door to the deportation pipeline uh, through 287G, which was authorized by IRA-IRA, the, the Clinton-era law, which allows, uh, which facilitates the deputization of, of cops and sheriffs uh, and jails all over this country as ICE agents, including people like Joe Arpaio, the former Maricopa County Sheriff in Arizona. And so Obama achie- achieves record deportations and as a response prompts another movement led by particularly Latino youth, immigrant youth, immigrants in general, immigrant youth, um, against this deportation. And then we see that increasing the polarization, even as Obama's efforts to crack down on on undocumented immigrants and to perform for the right wing that, just like George Bush did, George W. Bush did, that this, this idea that if they could convey to the nativist right in Congress and and on Fox News or whatever, that they were serious about enforcing the border, that the nativist right would be reasonable and come around to supporting comprehensive immigration reform. That obviously never happens because Bush and Obama are unilaterally pursuing a policy of nativist anti-immigrant escalation, both in the interior and at the border. And so even, even if the right-wing nativists were like logical, which I mean, they're probably not. But if they were, why would they ever compromise for comprehensive immigration reform when they're getting the standalone nativist uh, enforcement escalation from both George W. Bush, a purported immigration moderate, and Barack Obama, a purported friend of, uh, of immigrants and champion of legalization? And so that culminates in the election of Trump, where the Overton window on immigration enforcement has moved so far to the right that for many people on the right, the only escalation left that makes sense is a literal hermetic ceiling of the entire southern border of the nation and now the White House itself. And so suddenly the entire kind of normal history that had preceded it appears as something a lot more sinister. Yeah, so that that, that was, uh, you know, that was really helpful in just kind of charting the path basically from um, the 2000s through to the present. And, you know, one of the things that's that's interesting about the present that's tied to that party polarization around the question of immigration is the fact that, you know, the Trump agenda and the nativist position is itself, you know, it has a clear base. It was a base that Trump was able to use um, to, to get elected. But it's it's increasingly a minority position. And popular sentiment around immigration, um, this is something that you note toward the end of the book, has changed quite dramatically since the 1990s. Something like, 
you know, Prop 187 that gets almost 60 percent of the support in California uh, in 94, you know, would never get that kind of support, you know, today. And this has a lot to do with, you know, the internal position within the Democratic Party shifts in perspective. But I guess the question that I want to ask they're probably you, more children. They're probably more children of undocumented immigrants in the California State Assembly than than supporters of Proposition 187 today. There you go. <laughs> so the question that I wanted to ask you is if this moment in a way shows the limits of Trump's politics and indeed even the limits of the kind of bipartisan agreement um, that marked the, the 90s and the 2000s, um, you know, how progressive ultimately, though, is our current immigration conversation so that there's there's obviously there's mass resistance to the Muslim ban. There's support for the dreamers. There's concern about like the violence perpetrated by ICE. There was, you know, outrage about the um, the caging of caging and disappearing of children, the separation of families at the border. Um, But, um, you know, beyond uh, a certain kind of uh, moral concern, um, how far has the politics actually moved? And um, and I'm interested in your thoughts about this, because I'd then like to just ask you to sort of explicitly compare what we're seeing with immigration politics, with the the contemporary conversation around police reform. But maybe just start with, you know, this question of how how progressive is this current moment around immigration specifically? Yeah, it's a complicated question because the the breakdown in the bipartisan basis of for the war on immigrants presents both opportunities and, and dangers. The opportunities were were visible in the Democratic primary, which is technically still going on right right now, I suppose, um, were de- decriminalizing illegal entry, which is a, a felony whose prosecution skyrocketed under the Bush and Obama presidencies, were decriminalizing illegal entry, which had been on the books, I believe, since 1929, which has a fascinating history that we don't have time to get into. But doing that became a kind of litmus test for supporting immigrant rights. Um, and that's huge because that is the policy, not only that Obama and Bush used so much in their crackdown, but that Trump used to impose family separations. And that would have been hard to imagine in 2016, let alone 2012, 2008. I mean, in 2006 or something, I don't remember the exact year, uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, when she was a senator from New York, said, you know, I am adamantly against illegal immigration and complained about having to see day laborers on corners around around New York. I mean, the political center of gravity on this question within the Democratic Party shifted enormously. And that's absolutely like no credit to most of the politicians, but just of the where people are at has forced politicians to to respond. Um, and then in Bernie Sanders's platform, which was very good on immigration, there was a there was a pledge for a moratorium of sorts on on deportations which was huge and critically a pledge to end these the, the the crimmigration system these these tight links between the criminal justice and immigration enforcement system that have been developed that have been developed over the the prior decades ending the 287G program ending secure communities so that's the the optimistic side that's the opportunity side We've we don't yet know what that'll look like with um, a fossil preserved from that era of the war on immigrants and crimes like Joe Biden as a Democratic president, like what that'll look like in practice. But the primary gives me some hope that things are that that a Democratic president 
this year, even a shitty one like Joe Biden will be better than Obama was on this issue. And again, no, that's not any praise for Joe Biden. That's praise for the politics that are changing the conditions within which a Democratic president operates. The dangers, of course, are that the Republicans are increasingly unhinged in their anti-immigrant politics. The, the the most kind of revealing polling I've seen on that is since Trump's election, the number of Republicans who believe, this was a Pew survey, uh, who believe that immigration uh, poses a threat to like our national identity, you know, a very unsubtle kind of like racism in xenophobia test question has gone considerably up since Trump's election amongst Republicans. And we're also, uh, you know, the popular politics of this aside, what we're seeing from the Trump administration is not only an intensification of the war on undocumented immigrants, but an attempt to finally thread the needle on what the nativist movement has always wanted and what the war on undocumented immigrants was always supposed to be the means to the end of, which is an end to all immigration as as we've known it. And Stephen Miller and others in the administration have been very smart and sophisticated about using every administrative lever at their disposal to choke off legal immigration, whether it's refugee resettlement or just green cards. Even before, So even before this pandemic, we had seen a significant decrease in the annual number of legal immigrants coming to the country. And now with the pandemic, the Trump administration has taken advantage of the, the kind of de facto and, and uh, formal uh, shutdowns and cross-border movement to issue an executive order suspending immigration, not just on public health, but also on economic grounds. And given the Supreme Court's rationale for uh, rubber stamping the, the, what was it, the third Muslim ban, because Trump said it was for national security and yeah, president could do whatever they want because of national security. Because of that, I'm very pessimistic that if Trump cites national security because the global south is being ravaged by coronavirus. I'm very uh, in terms of defending his suspension of immigration, targeting particular countries. I'm not optimistic that it will uh, that the courts would 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 block would stop him from doing that. And then the last thing I'll say in terms of problems is just in the same way with mass incarceration that we've seen uh, this thing that that people call um, sentence inflation happen where like 25 to life for a, a, a murder used to be normal in the U.S. And, and then you could expect to get paroled or or your sentence commuted at some point along the way. The, the increase in sentences for every sort of crime has made sentences that were once deemed harsh and appropriate to, to certain crimes, including violent crimes, make, make them now in retrospect seem too light and weak and insufficient to the severity of the crime. So with with criminal justice reform, we're seeing a lot of the low-hanging fruit being picked around, you know, legalizing marijuana, um, pushes to, to, you know, decriminalize or stop enforcing or stop incarcerating people for all sorts of quote-unquote nonviolent crimes. But uh, the third rail is still reform around around violent crimes, which has been a huge driver of mass incarceration. And a big part of that is because the 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 extremely long sentences, including the explosion of life without parole, these have been normalized and are very hard to backtrack on without. Um, and so the same things happened with with immigration. It's now normal 
to have, you know, 20 odd thousand Border Patrol agents, even though we only had like 4,000 or so three decades ago. The politics of 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 actually getting rid, I mean, open borders is like my utopian uh, guide star or whatever the, the term is, North Star. But I mean, just a more pragmatic radical question of how we cut the size of the Border Patrol by 75 percent or whatever so that it it is where it was three decades ago. That seems incredibly hard because there's this normalization, this normalization, um, and kind of institutional path dependency of the politics surrounding repressive, repressive apparatuses of the state. Same with the border wall. We used to not really have much at all. There were some really like jokes of offense, like around San Diego and and uh, El Paso and whatnot. And now there's 650 miles, maybe 700 miles now. I haven't looked recently. Most of it built before Trump was. Uh, Elected, and it's very hard to imagine uh, uh, how to build a political consensus around around dismantling that that already existing wall. I think we have the political force right now to stop new wall from being built if we if even like a kind of like normal Democrat wins power. But dismantling the, the repressive apparatuses—I don't know if that's the correct plural—that uh, that that have been built over the last few decades seems very challenging. Yeah. So uh, maybe one more question before we go to the um, to the the questions that I have, you know, and it in a sense just picks up with your last point, which is um, if the the kind of lodestar, the thing that that we're we have in mind is like, what would it mean to actually think of the border not as a closed barrier, but as something that is a, a port of entry where you have presumptive admission, you have it's decriminalized. And that there's a genuine commitment to freedom of movement and really to the the labor and political rights that should um, apply to all individuals, regardless of whether or not they're citizens. And so that's a it's a kind of emancipatory vision, and it's really um, an abolitionist politics that um, treats uh, the question of immigration in the border as another site for contesting um, the rise of um, like a security apparatus to, to manage poor black and brown brown bodies. Um, a week ago, maybe this is a slightly more hopeful way of, of addressing this, I would have said that the immigration conversation and let's say the policing conversation were essentially in the same place, which is there's a growing sentiment within the Democratic Party that there needs to be reforms um, to the way that the police behave, that there are concerns about racism, um, sentiments about the fact that racism is like a major problem have um, grown pretty exponentially within the Democratic Party. But at the same time, there's the same kind of extreme polarization around the issue of policing and race um, that you within. Uh, so a very different perspective among Republicans that you see in the immigration context. Um, and similarly, I would have said what you just pointed, which is, you know, maybe if you get a Democrat in charge, you can have some kind of minor reforms that limit the further you know, ex- uh, the further extension of the carceral system, the attempt in some kind of limited way to to contain policing, but you're not going to get anything more significant. But right now, um, on the table, both at the national level and at, you know, across a number of different municipalities at the city level, is a politics of defunding the police, um, diverting budgets, uh, to community organizations and um, to to the sort of like the ec- basic economic well-being of of citizens, 
um, raising questions about the relationship between policing and incarceration. Who knows exactly where it's going to go? Um, but that feels quite different than where the conversation was a week ago. And, you know, what do you imagine as what will be required to to have a similar conversation that's much more expansive about really the need to defund, um, you know, border security and to transfer um, um, resources, to have the same kind of de-invest, reinvest conversation around immigration that we're starting to see emerge around policing and incarceration. It looks like Dan's actually going to have some technical issues being able to, to come back on. So with that, thank you, everybody, for joining. Thank you, Daniel, for your um, terrific book. And um, thanks again, um, everyone who participated in organizing this, but also who's uh, on the streets uh, fighting to make this a place more worthy of all of us in the future. All right, take care. Aziz Rana is a professor of law at Cornell Law School and the author of The Two Faces of American Freedom. He is currently finishing a book titled Rise of the Constitution on the modern emergence of constitutional veneration in the United States and its lasting political effects. He was interviewing me, Dan Denver, who is the author of the book All American Nativism and the host of this podcast. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the police, the judiciary, and the administration are not deputies of civil society itself, they are office holders of the state whose purpose is to manage the state in opposition to civil society. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky, our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, same on Facebook, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation running. Even a few bucks is enormous. Uh-huh.